Welcome to Wise Women Speak with Linda Pritcher and Lana Bostianuti, where we give voice to the wisdom in women. Lana and I are here again with Wise Women Speak. Today, we're delighted to be having a conversation with Sue Cross. Sue's an Alzheimer's life coach and legacy consultant. Her work in the areas of legacy and engagement with people with Alzheimer's is remarkable and rare. She helps people shape how they'll be remembered when they've left this life, capturing their family legacies in creative and meaningful ways. Sue has a special passion and a talent for supporting those suffering from memory loss, and we'll be talking about that in greater detail during our conversation. She has a master's degree in social psychology from Harvard. She is also a co-founder of Morning Dove Studio, a natural burial company in Arlington, Massachusetts. Sue is an artist and a photographer, and she's deep into writing a book about her work and the profound experience of creatively engaging a client with Alzheimer's. Welcome, Sue. So what set you on this path? Um, How did you come to do the work that you're doing today? I know that's a big question, so you can start (laughs) anywhere you like. Start at birth. (laughs) (laughs) How much time do we have? (laughs) You've got five minutes. Well, let me just say, I'll start with where I was, um, I think, off track. Mm-hmm. I was doing a traditional route. I thought I'd go to graduate school. I was really drawn to psychology. And um, I got into both BU and Harvard, BU Clinical Psych and Harvard Social Psych. And um, instead of following my heart, which was telling me to do the clinical psych program, I went to Harvard because it's Harvard <laughs> <laughs> and because they fully funded me. But it wasn't clinical psychology, it was um, social psychology. So I spent four years um, there doing work um, that really was not my heart's calling. I ended up doing intergroup social psychology, um, conflict analysis and resolution. Um, I got deep into evaluating third-party approaches to resolving ethnic conflict, which is really good and, and important and meaningful work, but it was so not me. And um, in my fourth year, I won the uh, MacArthur Peace Scholar Fellowship for my dissertation research. And um, that very same week that I got the notification that I had won, I discovered I was pregnant with my daughter. And um, I ended up just really doing some soul searching in that. I was crying. I was so excited, but also so scared with both of these different choices. And... um, I decided to um, follow my heart, and I took a leave of absence from Harvard. I declined the fellowship, and um, I started becoming a mother, and I gave birth to my daughter. And uh, along the way, I discovered um, a mother's group, and a woman in the group had told me about an art studio that she was a part of, a community art studio. And I went there and checked it out, and. Um, and that began a really beautiful journey. Um, Have you, were you, growing up, did you engage in a lot of art activities? Was it always part of you or did you come to it later? I was always a really creative kid. I was always happiest when I was making. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I loved projects. And, you know, it's funny, one of the projects I remember loving a lot, which was an early indicator, was when we had to do some kind of family history project when I was little. I loved kind of getting the stories from my, whatever I could, from my grandparents, my my parents. And um, 
And I love to paint and make art. And even when I was in graduate school, I would spend my free time sort of finding objects and making mirrors and and doing creative things. But it never really felt like uh, like I could lean into that and trust that love. Um, and I ended up letting my head lead me. Mm. And honestly, I feel like I was living so much from a place of insecurity for so much of those early years. Um, and then into graduate school. And it wasn't until I landed at the art studio and discovered that you could live a different kind of life. You could be led by inspiration and that you could start to listen to the wisdom that was inside of you and not coming from the ivory tower and from all the experts. And uh, so. Yeah, from the external world, from right? External yeah, world. From, the, from the accolades. I mean, that was a remarkable thing to get a grant like that. Um, and to get that kind of approbation, and you turned it down. Yeah. So many people would not do that. So many right? people thought I was crazy. I'm sure they did. <laughs> they did. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is that um, it was really cool to sort of... Landing at the studio was really a wonderful lesson in beginning to have a relationship with the not knowing, you know, with the unknown. Yeah. I had, you know, I had spent so many years always planning, you know, all the work I had to do plan to get into graduate school, to get into Harvard, then all the work there. It was always about having a plan. And the thing about letting all of that fall was that I was left with just me and this beautiful new relationship with my daughter and my husband. And I really just had to listen to what was coming up and through me. And I was, you know, I was feeling lost a lot of that way. I can't say it was always easy to not know. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't a good enough artist to make a living at doing art. I think it can be tricky sometimes to, to make a living, to put that onto your art. Yeah, it's a right. challenging profession. So what I was looking for from the, the engagement in the creative process was to sort of find what I cared about because I had forgotten. I think I'd become really kind of dis... I was so into my head path that I had mm -hmm. forgotten what I loved. And it was funny because... Um, as I was, you know, making art, and my teacher at the time at the studio, her name was Kate, and she was just brilliant and grounded and beautiful human being. And she said, you know, art will help you put your life together backwards and forwards if you let it. I love that. Yeah. What wow, did she mean by really that? Great. Well, for me, um, my art making led me to uh, a reconnection with my ancestors, mm. my grandparents had come from Hungary. And um, although I had done that family tree when I was little, it, it was shocking to me that I had none of their stories, none of their real stories, none of their life stories. They took them to the grave with them hmm. because nobody had thought to ask them. And they both had really amazing lives back in Hungary. And so my art took me to this love of all things Hungarian. So I ended up going to Hungary three times and falling in love with the the folk art and the customs and the embroideries and the colors and the music. And um, then I ended up inheriting all this stuff from um, my grandparents long after their death, these objects, these beautiful things that they had brought with them from Hungary. And um, and I realized I didn't have any of the stories with this stuff. I had all this stuff, but none of the stories. So I... Oh. Yeah, I dealt... So you had to discover 
the story attached? The story is attached. Oh. And that's what my trips to Hungary are about. Like okay. I was, they have an art of living there that really mm. moved me. The, 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 what we call the peasant art, the folk art. Yeah. Yeah. It was really grounded in their living. And they made things to mark the milestones of their lives in personal, meaningful, and beautiful ways. And I found myself getting really captivated by um, their beautiful rituals and art around death and dying. Because it just seems so different from the way that we do things here. Um, so uh, I ended up creating an installation called Zoli's Wake, which was exhibited at the Armenian Museum in Watertown in 2005. And it, I created a room where I was telling the story of a boy who died in the wake that was going to happen for him. And, and from there... So this is the funny thing. When you start to sort of follow what you love and pay attention to what lights you up yeah. or what gets you curious, you know, mm -hmm. um, these interesting opportunities happen. And so this woman from my daughter's school came and saw the installation, Zoli's Wake, and she was thinking about starting a natural burial company. What is that exactly? Yeah. Because I don't burial. think a lot of our readers, no. our listeners, readers... <laughs> We'll be transcribing this. That's right. Um, I don't think they understand what that is. Natural burial is the way that we've always done burial. So what we have now yeah. here in America is very unnatural. Unnatural burial. You know, yeah. we, really? we am, when, when our loved one dies, we yeah. have strangers take them away. That's they go so to a, a morgue and then they yeah. go to a funeral home and yeah. they are embalmed. Mm -hmm. You don't want to know what happens to the body during embalming, but suffice it to say that in most other cultures, they believe the soul lingers with the body for three days. Huh. And, um, you know, what we do to the body here is really pretty gruesome. Um, and they have home wakes. So families and friends are invited to come and keep the soul of the departed um, for, you know, two or three days. And it's a beautiful way to engage with saying goodbye to somebody that yeah. you love. And it, I think it really eases the pain of that. There's an intimacy and, and a beauty in that. And what we do now, I just feel like it cuts us off from connection. So Ruth and I got together, and we decided to try and offer people some other options. Mm. And, um, and the best thing I did, actually, in working with Ruth was I painted my own casket. And I painted it with a Hungarian um, dowry chest design that I had fallen in love with, very uplifting tulip pattern. Mm. Um, and I was telling Linda before that my neighbors thought I was crazy. I had my casket in the backyard for days, and I was out there painting away and having the time of my life. It was really fun. Wow, you know, celebration. To, to celebrate yeah. what I love. And then when the casket was done, I realized, oh, my God, this is too beautiful to bury. And I had this idea of, you know, I was just sort of free associating and thinking about the dowry chest. Girls, you know, in yeah. so many cultures around the world throughout history have had a, a dowry chest, and it's to help move them through the transition of, of leaving their family home mm -hmm. and getting married. And, right. and they fill the dowry chest with all the stuff that they're going to need in their new family to mark the milestones of that family. So I had this aha moment that you know, I could use this casket as a legacy chest, not bury it, but use it to start to store and save and capture the treasures of my life and the memories from my mom and my dad and any of the stories I was able to get about my grandparents who are now long gone. So this would be a place to sort of capture 
what matters to me that I want to be able to pass on to Layla, my daughter, so she doesn't end up the way I did, just having to kind of, you know, figure it all out. Piece together things. Piece it together. Yeah. So what is one thing that you have captured already? Can you share? Oh, well, like, you know, having this legacy chest actually really inspired me to interview my parents. So I had this one great conversation with my dad. I sat him down. He was nervous. And I was nervous, too. It's funny. Why do we get nervous um, recording stories from our... But I was surprised by the fact that I was nervous. I think and, it's because yeah. you want to make it right or something. Yeah. Like, it I, has yeah, to be right somehow. That. Yeah. It becomes it becomes self-important, right? Yeah. You give it yes. you give it that importance, and then suddenly it starts to feel a little unnatural. Yeah. It right? does. It's not like it's yeah. no longer like a conversation. Exactly. Yeah. But I would guess that he probably he, and you probably shook that off after a while. Well, I gave him uh, a glass yeah. of wine. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that always works. <laughs> that went in the chest. <laughs> But here's the cool thing. The cool thing is I learned things about my father in this hour that I had never known. And I realized how often people are like these walking treasure chests of stories, and we don't know it, even our own family members. I mean, that blows my mind, Um, just the invitation. And it was so moving to me to see how, you know, he, he lit up. He loved he loved the attention. He loved the chance to go back and to reflect and to make meaning and to kind of follow the, the, the thread of his story. And uh, so I made a CD of that, and I was able to give it to my brother, and it's been transformative, actually. I think that was the point when the light bulb went off for me that I love life stories, mm-hmm. and I want to help. Yeah. I want to work with elders or people who are near the end of life or even people in midlife, people who want to look back you know, and kind of gather up what came before, and then think about how to move forward. Um, Yeah, I think there's a point at which it's somewhere between, you know, when you know that you've got like technically half a life left to the point where you get to a third of the life left, that you start to become more reflective. You're less in forward motion at at a gallop, and you're slowing down enough to take the time and the space to be more reflective. Yeah, I think that's really I think really there's great. also yeah. uh, sort of with life experience, there's the humbling in life yes. that life mm. has on you. Yeah. Um, where with this reflection, you you kind of see things from a totally different perspective. Whereas when you were in the moment of it, it just seemed there was no there was no grace in it. There was no lesson. It was just hardship. Yes. And then upon reflection, you see. You can have a vision of the beauty and even tragedy yes. and even hardship that you experienced. Is there, yeah. you know, because you're so interested in legacy and story and, you know, Linda and I, I would say, we're, yeah. we're very much interested in that as well, given mm-hmm. that we're coaches and we've looked at our own lives. What, um, what do you think story gives people? Oh, perspective. And I think that it gives you the opportunity to taste life twice. Mm-hmm. I think that it's the only, for me... It's how we kind of digest and metabolize our, our life. And it's the way we make meaning. And it's that, that meaning making becomes really important as we get older. Uh, I'll get share a story of my client, Louise. So I, I ended up starting to work with elders. And I will say, let me just say this also. Um, my ego was in this. It, it felt a little bit embarrassing to have this degree from Harvard and be doing, you know, I started off um, making $11 an hour as um, a caregiver. Because I realized I don't know 
a lot about elders. I don't really know how to work with them. I don't know what that would really feel like. My grandparents died when I was like 16. So, you know, my ego was giving me a really hard time yeah. at that point. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? You're doing this job that your grandmother could have done as an immigrant when she came to this country. And so I was somehow able to kind of quiet that voice and just allow what was going to unfold to unfold. And what I discovered is that I love working with elders. Mm. I love being able to touch them and, you know, touch their lives and to help them light up again. So this, my first client was 93, born on, um, born on Valentine's Day, actually. And died at 97 on Halloween. That always struck me as very interesting. But Louise was very depressed when I first started working with her. And I remember kind of knowing I wanted to help her capture her stories. So I just said, I want to, I'd love to help you capture your life stories. Why don't, you know, we do a project together and, you know, we can have something to to give your children, your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And she put her hand into her head and shook it heavily and said, you know, I've had a boring life. Nobody would be interested in my stories. And I just knew that that wasn't true. Yeah. Mm. So I asked her daughter if she had any photos and memorabilia from Louise's life, and she gave me a big box full of stuff. And uh, Louise also said at the beginning when I started working with her, I can still go skating and bowling in my dreams. Oh, my. That's why I like to sleep so much. And she was sleeping all the time. And this is the thing that breaks my heart with so many elders, not just those with dementia, but all of them. They start to sleep a lot because there's really not much keeping them awake. Yeah. Um, so as we started to go through the boxes of photos and memorabilia, it just blew my mind to see her light up. And she'd say, I'll be darned <laughs> when she'd see a certain photo that had a great story. And then I would write the story down like verbatim and I'd save that photo and after three years of working together this way, we, uh, I made a book for her with one photo on one page and then her story about that photo on the other page. And I gave it to her for a Christmas present one year. And uh, she just, oh, it was so beautiful to see. She, she cradled, cradled it like a baby. I mean, she thought she referred to this book as her Bible, her treasure. And it uplifted her in ways that just really surprised her family, you know. And it was her story and her words, the things that mattered to her. Um, And kind of helping her to pay attention to what she had loved throughout life, even though she can't do most of what she used to love to do. So you ask, you know, what's the point of doing, you know, what's the, the glory of doing life story work? You get to... It points you to what you've loved. And and my feeling about life is that we come here to love. So the more time that we can spend with that, you know, and savoring that, um, it's very uplifting, very, very uplifting. And I think that she felt such pride at the end of, you know, finishing this book. I asked her, you know, do you want to add something at the end for your children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren? And she said, well... I only hope that they have as interesting a life as I have had. And then she said, enjoy the first 75 and chin up for the rest. (laughs) (laughs) But what really struck me... What brilliant advice. Oh, my God. Speaking of wisdom. I know. I was just thinking The wisdom in women. 
Chin yeah. up for the rest. <laughs> yeah, chin up for the rest. We're not there yet. No. She did a 180, though. If you think about feeling yeah. like she had a boring exactly. life, yeah. all that we did oh, together yeah. is I sat and we, we went through her life stuff and I listened to her stories. Yeah. And she suddenly saw the value and the meaning and the gold, you know, the gold yeah. that she had, this and treasure. And that could be true for anyone. Absolutely. It was such a beautiful gift you gave and to the family, too. I can see why you're inspired in this work. It's very special. Yeah. And as I said, it's rare. It really is rare. It's, it seems to me that you're, you know, from that moment that you decided whether you were going to go with the fellowship at Harvard mm. and then you moved into art, it seems like you've been guided by something other than your head, which mm -hmm. is the antithesis of what most people most do people now. Most people do, yeah. So what is it that's been guiding you or what what have you listened to and how do you know it's not your head like do you make that distinction consciously or what is it it's funny because i've gotten so much better mm -hmm. in recent years to know the difference between when my head is telling me it feels like more of a should mm -hmm. and it's really a, like when i'm feeling that feeling of love or joy or inspiration it's like i'm almost being pulled towards something and when i'm listening to my my head my intellect my ego it's like it's a doing it's like i have to do this yeah the other is more of an unfolding and it's more of um just a, a feeling of i want to yeah. i just want to i want to i want to help i want to be of service in this way and and actually it's fun you know when i'm listening to my wisdom the work i'm doing is really fun my my friend lynn who mm -hmm. has has been living with alzheimer's for 14 years she was a family friend. I knew her since I was two. She was my best friend's mother. And we didn't have a close relationship when I was young. In fact, for my 13th birthday, Lynn gave me a book called Tiffany's Table Manners for Teens. <laughs> hmm. A I little know. bit of a hint there. Yes, right. oh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, you know, it was interesting. Uh, beginning to work with her, I, I don't even know how to I'm not really sure how to share this story because it's so deep and it's so rich, but we have basically had a love affair for the past six years. I started working with her to help her continue making jewelry because she was a jeweler. And mm -hmm. so she was teaching me jewelry. And that's one of the things I love to do when I work with elders to help sort of figure out what they've loved to do and help them keep doing it whenever way. And if I can be the student, that's even better because then they get to feel like they have something to offer, something of value, Purpose. and it's so so yeah. important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we did that for as long as we could, and then that became too difficult for her. And then um, I had the idea of putting a piece of charcoal in her hand. She'd never been much of a, a drawer, and um, let me tell you, what started to come through this woman just blew my sockets. I mean, she just had such a way of bringing, she loved animals, so I'd, I'd be photographing animals everywhere and bringing them to her, and she would draw them. And uh, and uh, it kept her alive and engaged in ways that she couldn't in the rest of her life. Um, she couldn't sustain attention, you know, with most things, and she would be able to draw with me for hours. Uh, and then that eventually started to fade, and the drawing stopped giving her pleasure. And we've spent the past um, year, year and a half, having car picnics at Spy Pond all times of year. It's actually even more fun in the winter when it's storming outside. I keep the engine going. It's warm. We have 
tea and she has her favorite ham and cheese sandwich. And we are starting to do a different kind of making, which is this meaning making. And I'm learning from her again about what it's like to live with a disease like Alzheimer's. And the thing that's really surprising me is I'll pick her up on the memory care unit where she now lives and she's just really out of it, you know, sleeping in the middle of a music therapy class, just really not engaged and confused. And I take her and I get her dressed and we go out and we have these adventures. And what is possible with her? Her wisdom comes, even though on the unit she can barely put words together some days, when we settle into that place of not knowing together, it is so amazing. Um, we get curious and we, we wonder and then we wisdom, you know, like this wisdom starts to come through. And, uh, and I'm recording these conversations and I am writing a book about what's possible because so much is possible. So much is possible even deep into this disease if we are able to see the person as the human being that they are and not as Alzheimer's, yeah. you know? And I think that's where people like check out, right? Families check out because the person seems to be turning away from them, seems to be lost in some way, and they can't feel the personal connection anymore. They're not, they don't have the same relationship. So I was just wondering about how you how you interface with the families, like with, in Lynn's case, say, what, what did her family discover over time? How did, how did they relate to you? I think, um, so what I started doing with Lynn, because I just couldn't believe it was happening with the two of us, um, and just to see uh, the uplift in her energy, let me just say that, they really started to notice that she was very uplifted and, and much more verbal. Um, and I started doing these updates where I would send photos and quotes and videos of our time together because I wanted them to see what was possible. And I yeah. think that they, they all feel really grateful. And they, they've done such an amazing job, this family in particular. They were giving Lynn cello lessons, you know, hmm. um, really trying to help her stay engaged in whatever ways that they could. So. How, does, how do your, you know, you mentioned that she wasn't, she's not very engaged when she's, in her home, where she lives now. She's on a memory yeah, care she's, memory care. Yeah, she's, yeah. yeah. So how do you pull that out of her? What does that look like? Well, the first thing I'll say is really important, and this has sort of been my journey as well, pay attention to what you love. So I always try, and luckily, you know, knowing Lynn for as long as I did and sort of going through, oh, I went through all the photos, the photo mm -hmm. albums, you're always looking for, for what a person has loved. And so when... When you're in that territory and you can help, you know, there is this remembering self which declines with yeah. this disease, okay? But we always have the experiential self. And when you start to realize that a person can experience this moment almost as clearly and truly as you and I do in their own way, um, and as long as you're talking about things that kind of get them curious, like I'll bring TED Talks and I bring articles and essays. And honestly, I'm very open with her. I, I share what's on my mind. If, I'm, if my mom is ill and you know, we decide to read poetry about um, mothers and the death of mothers, you know, I'll cry in front of her. I, the more real I am and the more mm -hmm. serious the topic that I bring up with her, the more engaged she is. And so that has been a real eye-opener for me. 
Because I see so many people working with people living with Alzheimer's, talking to them as though they're children. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. true. You know, they don't think that the person is still in there. And what I am noticing, even people who are almost at the end, they are in there. They're in there. They're yeah. in there. They need you. They need us more than ever. They need the caregivers. And this is why I now call myself a life coach for people living with Alzheimer's, because I see the life, I see the health, I see the well-being that underlies everything that is completely there. And I see the possible. Yeah. And my job is to be an inspirementalist. That's what I call myself. I want to inspire engagement. I love that. That is a That's beautiful great. term. It's, yeah. yeah, it's brilliant and beautiful. You know, it's interesting. A few weeks ago, I was in, I was visiting with dear friends of mine and their, my good friend's mom was there and she has dementia. Mm. And so she's not really verbal, but she'll, she'll sort of talk it sounds like gibberish. So she'll, she, she was just talking to me in sort of gibberish. And I didn't, I mean, I've never had to deal with that before. So I really didn't know how to respond. So I just kept smiling and kind of, you know, trying to look at her at a deeper level and just engage with her that way. And actually my daughter was the best at it. She acted like there was nothing wrong. And yeah. she just engaged with the dog and was telling you know, the mother, certain things and talking to her as if nothing was amiss. That's it. And then when we were having dinner, um, she just kind of broke out in song. Like she just, <laughs> she just started <sighs> singing. And, and once again, like it's, it's interesting to see everybody's reaction because people, a lot of people don't know what to do. Like, mm. oh, what do we do? Do we pretend she's singing? Do we pay yeah. attention? Do we acknowledge? Like people, we feel so... We're in the unknown. Yeah. We're yeah, in the unknown and we're not comfortable. Yeah, because people are then experiencing only themselves and right. their own right. thinking. Right. They're not engaged with the person anymore. And yeah. that's so that's so true of our interactions with people so often. You know, mm -hmm. even people who don't have Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. yeah. How often are we not present? Right. Oh. Yeah. A yeah. lot. This is the gift of Alzheimer's, actually. Yeah. See, they, they are the invitation to join them in the here and now, the right now, in our experiencing selves and be. Mm. Not do, but be. And be, so yeah. if you can break into song with that woman, that's wonderful. And it oh. sounds like your daughter gave her a real gift. Yeah. And so that's what I do. You know, Lynn has a hard time putting words together in ways that make sense. And she knows it. And she gets frustrated. But I always treat her with dignity. And I... I actually now intuit, I know, and, I, and I'll help her with the words. And she said, yes, that's exactly it. Mm. If you really start to tune in, you really you get on this shared wavelength, and you never make them feel ashamed. Or, you know, you, you learn not to ask questions that they can't answer. They can't answer questions often about the past, although it's funny, you know. They say that people living with this, this disease can't put down new memories, but Lynn has been doing these really funny um We've been having these funny moments together where at the beginning of a session, I'll mention, for example, my daughter's coming home later today from college, and I'm so excited to see her. At the end of the day, five hours later, when I'm driving her home, she says, you have your special person coming today. Mm, and it's uh, like, how did you remember that? You know, that's yeah. not supposed to be possible. But whenever I'm sharing something that's coming from love, or from sadness or whatever, it's there in her and she's able to hold on to it for, for hours and then reflect it back later, which is just amazing. Wow. Yeah, it really sounds like you're doing, in a way, like unintentional, but really powerful research 
on people who are living with this disease. I think more people should really be aware of the work that you're doing. That's why we're happy that you're writing a book. We're looking forward to reading it. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about what this book is going to cover. Well, it's interesting. This is another really great example of the unknown. This mm-hmm. book is going to tell me what it wants. And as I'm writing, basically, I've been doing the recordings, and I'm listening and I'm writing. We're going to be talking about creativity. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about death and dying. We're going to be talking about, we're talking about meaning and purpose. We are talking about art and love and joy, and um, and I think that's all I'll say about it for now. Yeah. Do you know what I've noticed? What? I've noticed when you're talking, you say we a lot, oh. and that's really <laughs> interesting. Are, are all your clients and the people you've engaged with, are they writing this with you? Like, I don't mean literally. I mean metaphorically. Oh, that is interesting. I think that they are. Yes. Yeah. I think, and my grandparents, my dead grandparents too. Yeah. <laughs> I and think... that's connection, right? Yeah. Yeah. Connection is the key word here. And, you know, we can talk about that with respect to our own journeys and our own life stories, but also um, we need to feel connected. We need to be connected to each other. And um, when people get older, and especially when people have dementia, connection is the most important gift that we have to give them, Mm. to see them, to love them. And this is what I love, is to be able to see another human being, to shine the light on them, to let them help them see what's beautiful and special about them. This is the way I like to work with people. So I'll go back through their lives and try and pull out what's special, what did they create over their lifetime? And you got to keep reflecting that back because we forget. We all need that. We need to be reminded of it. We do. Our... Yeah, we lose sight of it totally. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to all remember that this is true until the end of our own lives as well. So, yes. the, so connecting around to our own death and dying yeah. and to our own elderhood is a very important part of life. And to sort of be thinking about mining that, you know, trying to um, to mine the wisdom, the gold, and the life lessons, and all of that. Yeah, it's really important. Beautiful. Is is there something is there one thing in particular that you've heard from the people you've worked with that just really stuck with you that that resonated on a really deep level that kind of made you think, "Wow." Lynn says things like that every single Tuesday and Thursday that I see her. I mean, I couldn't even begin to every wow. single time. I am wow. completely yeah. moved. But I guess the one thing that I would have to say from my own life experience is just give yourself permission to pay attention to what you love and let that love lead you yeah. in life because that's where the wisdom will come. And, and, you know, it does involve the not knowing and to not be so afraid of not knowing, mm-hmm. but just to follow that faith. Beautiful. That's perfect. Beautiful. Thank you, Sue. Yeah. Thank, Thank you for you, having me. And um, if you, our listeners, mm-hmm. um, would like to be in touch with Sue, uh, you can reach her at Sue Cross Elder Care at gmail.com. And we'll um, probably put a link. I on think that. we'll put a yeah. link so that In people can notes. do that. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. It's Thank been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. This has really been a Delight. joy. Yeah. Until next time. Until next time. Bye, Lana. Linda. Bye, Lana. Bye, Sue. Bye, Linda and Lana. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Wise Women Speak. If you'd like to hear more, please go to wisewomenspeakpodcast.com or find us on iTunes.